Amen. You can be seated if you haven't already, and you can, uh, I, I just realized everybody already sat down before I said that, so that wasn't all that necessary. Uh, but let's open up our Bibles today, and let's turn to Romans chapter 3, as we keep going through Romans verse by verse. Um, there we go. We've come to chapter 3, verses 22 through 24 today. If you don't have a Bible, then get one of the black pew Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And in that Bible, it's on page 941. And uh, I'm going to read to us verses 21 through about halfway through 25, just for some context around what we are looking at today. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Two microphones. There we go. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What we have here... And what we're going to look at, we're going to look at the very end of verse 22 through the first phrase of verse 24. We're going to see today that we are sinners and that God is gracious. That's the heart of the gospel right there, is that God gives grace to sinners. And man, how much do we need that? More than we know, more than we know. We can have problems in this world, and sometimes you have a problem that gets relieved And you think, it is great that this weight has been lifted. Last week, I mentioned that we traveled and we we parked at Newark Airport in parking lot P6, the long-term lot there, which has been reopened after a long closing with COVID. And uh, I got the the advanced reservation because it's cheaper and I like that. And so I paid online. And after I paid online, I realized I put my license plate number in wrong. And I thought, okay, well, that's not that big a deal. I'll go back in and I'll change it. Well, I couldn't change it. And so I thought, well, that's not that big a deal. There will be somebody there at the gate who can help me. We rolled up to the gate. There was no human. We rolled up and it said, reading license plate, license plate not recognized, please take ticket. So I thought, okay, well, that's what I got to do. I'll take the ticket. And we rolled into the parking space and I saw that there were two texts that had been sent to me while I was driving that said, under no circumstances take a ticket. (laughs) And I thought, oh, no. So in my mind, all week long, as we're off, I mean, we we, didn't ruin our trip or anything, but I had sort of this low-level anxiety in my head, like we're going to get double-charged for our week of parking at the airport. This is awful. This is awful. Got back, went to the gate. You know what? It was easy. They sent that text because they didn't want to have to deal with it, but thousands of people do this. They know just what to do. They had a help button. They had a lady standing there because everybody getting back had messed up. Everybody. And it was, it was this kind of thing where, you know, if we just had a normal parking experience, I wouldn't have thought anything about it. But to have gone through the trouble of it and then to have that trouble relieved is just such a great feeling, even about something so small and silly as that. It's going to be an easy thing not to get double charged for my parking. Guys, there are problems in this world that are so much worse than parking. Uh, I mean, what, a, what an incredibly first world problem I just described to you, right? <laughs> and there are things that are much bigger than that, too, even within our own congregation. As a pastor, I know that there are problems that are very big and very difficult. And as a pastor, I go and I sit with dying people on a regular basis. And there's a lot of stuff that is hard in this world. You need to know, you need to know this in advance before those huge problems come. And even if they're on you right now, you need to know this because this is what the scripture says. There is a greater problem that you have, which is the problem of sin. Sin against a holy God, even knowing the depth of the difficult things that happen in this world to real people, the biggest problem that we have is sin. And God gives the full solution, which is grace. 
have a little problem like that and it's relieved and what a relief, but did you know the greatest problem is the, in the world is that we would stand before God uncovered with our sin in the light and with no plea. But God gives grace in Jesus Christ. He gives grace, grace in Jesus. Let's see what these, these verses, I'm, I'm starting here at the sort of the end of verse 22 where we left off two weeks ago. It says this about sinful man. If you're following along, there's four points on the back of your bulletin. First one is sinful man. It says this, for there is no distinction for all have sinned. It's pretty straightforward. There is no distinction. Now, when he says there is no distinction, he is, that's not said in isolation. That has to do with the chapters of Romans that have already led up to this and what Paul has been saying as he's getting here to the doctrine of God's grace, Romans, as a book, as this great big book, has been very heavy in pointing out the sinfulness of man. You know why that is? It's because to understand what grace is, you have to understand what sin is. Grace doesn't make any sense if you have some impression that it's deserved. Grace is undeserved. And he's been saying there is no distinction. He's been making that point for chapters now. Regardless of whether you are Jew or Gentile, regardless of whether you are someone who has grown up in church hearing these things all your life, or regardless of whether you are the native out on the island where there are governments that mandate that no one should have contact with you and you have never heard any of this at all, Whatever extreme you might be in, he is saying there is no distinction. Every human being has the same root problem, which is sin. And every human being has one and only one solution, which is not get better. It's not the law. In fact, he has just gotten done saying by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The one and only solution is the righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And in particular here, he is saying that there is no distinction in the fact that all have sinned. Now when he says all have sinned, if you're looking at those words in your Bible, which I hope that as I preach that you're always looking at the words in your Bible because they're more important than my words, What I'm trying to do is to explain these words, but these are the words where it says all have sinned. That's written there as something that has already happened. This is a completed action. This is not a possibility of a thing that might happen or a thing that probably will happen. It says here, all have sinned. There's no possibility that you might or might not sin or that you'll be the kind of person who makes the right choices. This is a done deal. Even if from this day forward, by by some incredible stroke of miracle, you were to have zero sin from right now to, to the day that you died, the fact is, you're already a sinner. You have already sinned. In fact, this is true for all mankind, even before our birth, because we were present, according to what we're going to see in Romans 5 when we get there, we we were present in Adam. All mankind is held guilty of the sin of Adam because all mankind was there, Adam and Eve. That's all humanity at that point, sinning against God in the Garden of Eden. And we we come into this world guilty of Adam's sin, And with a corruption in our nature, not with a blank slate that might go one way or another, but with a corruption in our nature that we are sinners, to where he can say, you have sinned. But even if you're going beyond that idea of original sin, if you are in here and you're able to understand the words that I'm saying to you, the fact is that you have also chosen to act out sin. This is already done in your life in the past. 
It's a true fact about you that you have sinned. It's not just the guilt of Adam's first sin. It's not just the corruption of human nature. It's actual sins that have flowed out of that nature in, who does it say, all. I should say at this point, when it says all, there is one exception. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was not born guilty of Adam's first sin, who was born fully human and yet born of a virgin, conceived of the Spirit, did not inherit the sin or the sinfulness of Adam. And that's going to be clear when he says that, that the grace that God gives is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I am so glad that there is one who came who is not guilty of sin, who is both God and man, who could be the solution to our sin, who is the solution to our sin. But guys, what it says here about us is all have sinned. You have sinned in actions that you've done. You have sinned in words that you have said. Maybe even this morning, getting your family in the car. You have sinned in the hidden secrets of the heart, which is where sinful desires live. Now, there are some people who who would... Now, they, they, they might say what is kind of like the pious, righteous thing to say in American culture, whether you're a Christian or not. They might say, yeah, of course I'm a sinner. Of course nobody's perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. By which they're saying, yeah, I'm going to say the thing that says that I am a sinner because that's the good person thing to say, and I am a good person. You see, you see the contradiction there? And, and there are some even who, who grow up in church and they, they obey their parents in, in this magnificent way and they do the things that they are supposed to do and they have, have a, a moral life and all kinds of, of things about their lives are, are virtuous and, and appear very beautiful. And yet, I want to ask you this. We, we have this TV up here and we don't play movie clips on it in our worship services. But, but what if we did? What if we had a movie of your thoughts over the past seven days? And we got your name right up at the top, and it says, we're going to play all of your thoughts. Just not, not for your whole life, just the last seven days. Guys, you know what it would show us? It would show us that we're sinners, and it would be pretty plain And I think there would be sections where all of us would cower our heads in shame, get out of the room and say, I can never go back there again after what everybody saw. Guys, all have sinned. All have sinned. It's a thing that has been done. There is no distinction here, he says, in the root problem for all humanity. All have sinned. There's a great gospel tract, by the way, that's available at the back door, and that little, uh, that little wooden, what do you call it, thing. Um, it's called the, greatest, or the Only Solution to the Greatest Problem. It's a John MacArthur gospel tract. I highly recommend that you take that, that you give it out, but even just read it for yourself. You, you need to know this is the root problem that we deal with, is being a sinner against the holy God. This is true without distinction. It's true for those who are quote-unquote good people or those who are quote-unquote bad people. This is true for those who are aware of their sin, deeply sometimes, sometimes troublingly aware of their sin. They know it. And it's true for people who are not aware of their sin, who have intentionally ignored their sin, who are walking in intentional ignorance about their sin who are walking in the darkness, trying to be in the shadows to cover up their sin. It's true for those who are aware or not aware. It's true for people who have done good works, but not out of faith and reverence to God. Good works that are not done out of faith in Jesus and reverence to God are not good works. You know why? It's because it's God who has created us. It's God who we are to serve. And if we are serving in any way that is not in allegiance to God, we are serving as enemies of God, even trying to appear righteous out of an ungodly desire to unseat God from his throne. 
That's why the Bible says in Romans 14 that whatever is not done in faith is sin. All have sinned. This is true of oppressors and oppressed. Now, I'm not using these categories here in the way that Marx and the Frankfurt School and the critical theorists and all those people would use the words oppressors and oppressed because those categories have become pretty much meaningless in those ways of thinking. But what I mean is this. There actually are those who would oppress others in a biblical way and those who are victims of the oppressors. You, you see this in, in terms of, uh, of Egypt and the Israelites where the people were enslaved and oppressed, and it was wrong. But did that get the Israelites out of needing to be forgiven of their sins? Absolutely not. They had to spread the blood of the lamb across their doorposts in order to have the angel pass over them and not take their firstborn son. When, when you have those who are sinned against... Yes, the one who did the sin against them is a sinner, but the fact that you've been sinned against does not mean that you are not a sinner. I'm not saying that, uh, that in every situation where there is sin between two parties that, that, that you've got a both sidesism. That's not what I mean is in particular things. I'm not saying if, if you have been a victim of domestic abuse that it's your fault. That is not what I'm saying at all. In fact, the abusers tend to try to twist things in such a way to say that they are the innocent victims in the whole thing. Very common. Which is part of why I need to say this very clearly. Regardless of whether you consider yourself to be one who has sinned against others or to be one who has been sinned against, you are a sinner who needs to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. There's no one who's exempt from this by being in this group or that group or this life situation or that experience. All have sinned. All have sinned. And it says here, now we, we gotta, I gotta clarify this. This doesn't mean that all have sinned in the same ways. It doesn't mean that all have sinned equally. It doesn't mean that every sin has equal guilt. But it does mean that every sin deserves God's wrath and curse. And that we deserve to be doomed in hell forever for our sin. That is what would be right. If you were calling out to God and saying, be fair, God, that's what would be fair. All have sinned and we deserve this punishment. It says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That would be what is fair. But look here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just a thing that happened in the past. It's also a thing that it's saying is continuing in the present. It says all have sinned. And you say, well, okay, well, I, I sinned in the past, but I've gotten better now. This is a very common thing is this idea of self-redemption. Like, oh, I, I, I will experience redemption by way of my own actions improving. Well, okay, I, I'm not going to tell anybody's actions not to improve, okay? Do better, that's fine, okay? But, but it, what it says here is not just all sin in the past in that completed sense, but all presently fall short of the glory of God. And what you see there is that God's standard is not, well, this person is pretty good, or this person has improved, God's standard is the glory of God. That, that's how he's defining sin here, is falling short of the glory of God, failing to do what God has commanded, doing what God has not commanded, doing against what God has said, breaking God's law, and ultimately this has to do with not recognizing God's glory, not attributing to God the glory that is due his name, not being what God has designed us to be. When we fall short of the glory of God, a, like I said, it's the present tense, and, and I want to remind you here too, this is all, all. Do you know who's included in all who fall short of the glory of God right now? Pastors and church members. One of the excuses is very common for those who would reject the gospel is to say, I'm not going to follow that 
because people that I have met who believe those things are sinners. You know what it says right here? Yeah. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if we meet somebody who claims to be a Christian who is at peace with their sin, that's a huge problem. We ought never to be at peace with our sin. But, but so often there can be this complaint, well, I am going to reject the Savior because those who claim to have been saved by him still fall short of the glory of God. They still experience the presence of sin. Guys, th- th- this, is, this is a very easy thing to see. It's a very easy thing to see. We, Jesus built it into his commands for churches. He, he didn't say churches should never have anyone in them who ever sins against each other. No, he said, when your brother sins against you, here's what to do in Matthew chapter 18. And he set up a system for how to deal with that, and we ought to obey those things. But it, it ought not to surprise us when we look around and we say, hey, this church has people who don't always do what's right. And guess what? That pastor did not always make me feel like that he cared about me. And I don't want to make you feel that way, but I know exactly what you mean, too. Um, every once in a while, I'll, I'll meet a famous preacher. And I'm not going to name names here, okay? But there's been a couple of times when I met preachers that I, I had listened to a lot of their sermons just you know, through podcasts or online before, and I just had great respect for them, maybe even read some of their books. And uh, I, I just re- I remember this one time when I met this preacher that I had so much respect for, and I, I went to him right after a sermon. I thanked him for the sermon. He said something to me very quickly that was encouraging, and I kind of thought about it, and I thought, well, it seems like he knows that he needs to encourage people who come and thank him for sermons. He knows what he needs to say. And then I, I thought of somebody that he and I both knew, uh, sort of a mutual acquaintance, and I, I asked him about that person, and his response to me was just rude, just just bizarrely rude and dismissive. And I thought, how could that pastor that I had so much respect for, whose sermons have benefited me so much, how could he sin against me like that in that brief interaction that I had with him? Should I therefore go back and dismiss all of the gospel preaching that I ever heard him do? No. You know what this does? It just shows us here, all still fall short of the glory of God. We don't come to a place where we're no longer in need of God's forgiveness and grace. We still need it. We still need it. Part of what I want to do there is I, I want to say if, if, if you personally are somebody who's here and your excuse for having not placed your faith in Jesus Christ is, but I had a bad experience with Christian X or Preacher X, guys, it's to be expected. You're not going to find a church without sin except heaven. And you're not going to find a pastor who does not fall short of the glory of God except Jesus. But I have good news. If you will come to Jesus, you join the church of heaven, even as this one is imperfect. And as you come to Jesus, you have Jesus as your pastor, even as the pastors here on earth are imperfect. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want to point out, though, what is the glory of God? As we're, we're saying this, there's, there's so many statements just in these few verses here that, that Paul has written that have to do with God and who he is. He, he's been speaking about the righteousness of God, and he's going to keep on using that term over and over until the end of the chapter, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. And here we see the glory of God, and next we'll see the grace of God, his grace And then we'll see the forbearance of God in verse 25. And we are told to look here, even as we're considering how can we be right with God, we need to know God. This is not an abstract thing about how can I get my sins forgiven in some sort of a a, whitewashed courtroom of nothingness. We are coming to a person, or I should say three persons and one God, 
We are coming to the holy God, an actual personal being who is glorious. We fall short of the glory of God, but what is that glory of God? Well, who, here, here's who God is. And I'm just, I'm just quoting the, one of the greatest statements that I know about who God is that's out of the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism or also in the Baptist Catechism. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You want to know what is the glory of God? Well, God is infinite. Infinite. There is absolutely no limit on God. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school today. We have limits. You hear all of these platitudes that are tossed around in the world about, uh, about if you believe it, you can do it. Believe in yourself, you can achieve whatever you set your mind to. Well, not exactly. You can't teleport. I can't just will myself to, to fly right now. I have a pretty good feeling, too, that no matter how badly I wanted to be president, that I would never be elected. There is all kinds of limits on us. But God is limitless. He is infinite. He is eternal. That means there was no beginning to God. There was no time when there was no God and then there was God. In fact, there was a time when there was no time. <laughs> there was only God. And he kicked everything off. God is eternal into eternity past and into eternity future. And he is unchangeable. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the starter and the purpose is part of what that means. He is unchangeable. When everything else around us changes, when our own bodies and souls change, God is the steady rock that never changes. He never changes. No matter what we do to him, he never changes. And he is all of those things, infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, in the fact that he is, that he doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. He just is. He calls himself the great I am. In his wisdom, meaning that he knows everything, he is infinitely smart. He knows exactly what to do in every situation. He is all wise and he is all powerful. There is nothing that God would will to do that is outside of what he can do. He is all powerful. In his holiness, his holiness is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. His holiness meaning his, it's just sort of this combination of his being set apart as different and his being completely pure in every way. In his justice, he will always do exactly what's right. He, he, in his goodness. Now, a lot of people accuse God of not being good because of the things that happen in the world. And in fact, the rest of chapter 3 is going to address that to some degree. How could God let evil happen? Well, God is going to turn out to be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The one who shows that he was righteous even as he passed over former sins. But God in his justice is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. And in his goodness is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. Both of those at the same time. And in his truth. Everything that he says is true. It is unchangeably true. It is exactly true. It is not your truth and his truth and hers truth. It is not this philosopher's idea of truth. It is that God is the truth. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ said this. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I could go on, and I, I think that we ought to go on all the time as Christians for the rest of our lives describing God in his glory. And what God's glory means is just sort of that shining beauty of, of the greatness of, of God, almost like this idea of light that would be displayed. And God is glorious. Whether people attribute that glory to him or not, he is glorious. But here's the fact. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you think that your standard for goodness 
or whether or not I am a good person is some other person that you have met, you are way off. If you are in, uh, in prison in the Supermax in Colorado and your standard for goodness is I am not as bad as that bomber down the hall, that's a pretty bad standard. If we are in a world where all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we say to ourselves, but I'm pretty good, what an incredibly bad standard. Guys, God's standard is God. God's standard is God. And when we are compared to that standard, it becomes obvious right away. We fall short of the glory of God. Now, what do we do with that? Well, one thing is that we should worship him for that. When the Bible talks about the glory of God, that ought to make our hearts as Christians burst forth into worship, knowing he is God, he is holy, he is worthy of all praise. Jesus even told us to pray this, hallowed be your name, God. We should worship him and we should be humbled for him. Now when I say be humbled before him, Christians, I'm not talking about being humbled before him to your shame. I'm talking about being humbled before him to your salvation. Here's how it says it in James chapter 4. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Oh, praise God for that. When we see all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, humble yourself before the Lord, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Oh, praise God for that. But how does he do that? Verse 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. I want to focus on that word right here, justified. This, if you're just looking here, in human terms, is a bizarre statement. He has just gotten done spending chapter after chapter describing how deeply sinful humanity is in his own nature. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether somebody who grew up with the law of God trying to preserve it as best they could, or whether somebody who has been in deep rebellion consciously against God their whole life, he has been saying, these are sinful people and there is no one righteous, there is no one who seeks God, no, not one, he said in, in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. None who seek God. And here it says that these sinners who fall short of the glory of God are justified. Now, why is that so weird? It's because it seems totally unfair. It seems totally backwards. How could a just God justify sinners? Now, what does it mean when we say justified? Well, it means that he pardons their sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. That's the basic of what justification is in the Bible. It's the same root as just or right or righteous. All of those things are kind of mixed together with the same root word in the Bible. And it says God can count sinners as righteous in his sight. Freely forgive our sins and accept us as righteous. Not because we're righteous, not because of something that we have done to deserve it, but because of the righteousness of another the righteousness of Jesus Christ that would be counted to us, put into our column in the accounting books. Jesus' righteousness counted to us by faith. That's what he's going to go on and he's going to say in verse 25, to be received by faith. And he already said that earlier in what we looked at in the previous verse, to righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is justification by faith alone. It is being counted as right before God only by his grace, only through faith, only in Jesus Christ. There are two outrageous claims in the gospel that are the the, the main reasons why it is rejected in the world. First outrageous claim of the gospel is that all are sinners. 
It's an outrageous claim because it calls people to acknowledge their unrighteousness. Naturally, human beings do not want to acknowledge their unrighteousness. Maybe just a statement here and there, of course I'm a sinner, but really just trying to say that so that their unrighteousness will not be exposed. Just like here, yeah, I'll I'll give you that statement so that you don't dig any deeper. Jesus says that's hiding in the darkness. And those who will not come to Christ won't come because they do not want to come into the light lest their evil deeds should be exposed. So that's the first outrageous claim of the gospel, calling all people to acknowledge their unrighteousness. But the second is exactly what we see here. And it's almost the opposite of that first one, but it's still right there in human hearts who reject the gospel. Second outrageous claim is that God freely pardons the guilty. God freely pardons, not the good, but the guilty. This seems completely backwards. If we were going to make up a system, we would not make it this way. Part of the reason I know that is because there are a lot of other systems in the world that have not been made by God but by man, and every one of them makes it the opposite way. A a system of man of how can you be right with God would say, by doing good works. It would be a system of law, a system of measuring up to God's standard. This says God justifies sinners. It seems the opposite. The Bible is saying that good people, I'm putting that in quotes, go to hell. And bad people go to heaven when they trust in the Lord Jesus. Not because of anything that they have done, but because of what he has done for us. The world looks at that, and if they understand the gospel and reject it, this is usually part of why. How could God let good people go to hell and let bad people go to heaven? Well, here is what the Bible says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God justifies not good people, but sinners. God justifies sinners. That's good news. That's right at the heart of the gospel. There there is nobody in their natural state who wants to admit that they are unrighteous enough to deserve hell, and yet that is the truth that the Bible is exposing here about all mankind. And there's nobody in their natural state, prior to being born again, who would think that it's right for God to freely pardon the unrighteous who actually do deserve hell. But when we receive the grace of God in Christ, this is the truth that makes us just want to jump for joy. God freely pardons the unrighteous and counts us as righteous in his sight. And he does it through Jesus. God justifies sinners. Here's how Jesus, what Jesus said in Mark 2.17. He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know what he's saying to everybody in the world who says, I do not need a sin doctor. No, thank you. He says, I will leave you in your sin. But to the sick to those who, whose eyes are opened by the, the grace and the Spirit of God to see the depths of their sin and to see the beauty and the, the goodness and the, the perfect sacrifice of the physician, he says, here, sin-sick person, you're made well. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I want to know, ask yourself this, do you feel the weight of your sin today? Do you feel the weight of your sin today? I have good news for you. People who feel the weight of their sin are people that God would justify. When you feel the weight of your sin and you look to Jesus in faith, we don't say, well, I guess because I feel the weight of my sin, I am not worthy of Christ. We say, obviously I am not worthy of Christ. And yet he justifies sinners freely. I would tell you this too. Sinners are the only people that God justifies. The only ones. If you feel the weight of your sin, 
go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. He will receive you. He said, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, feeling that burden of sin, that burden of the law, and he says, I will give you rest. I'll do it. That's grace. That's your fourth point on your bulletin there. Grace. Look at this. He says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Different translations might put that different ways. Freely by his grace, something like that. He justifies by his grace as a gift, and he says this with two different words that almost mean the same thing. As a gift and by his grace, he's driving it home. This is a free gift of God to the undeserving. If you've ever been to one of those museums in the city that lets you pay, in quotes, pay what you want, have you been to one of those before? We have. And what you encounter when you get there a lot of times is that the pay what you want idea, well, it's kind of true, and yet the first thing that you're going to pay is half your day standing in the pay what you want line. When there's another line for the people who pay the full suggested donation who are going to cut a couple hours off of their day that they would have spent standing in that line. So you pay that. And then you get up there and you're pressured to pay more. Do you want to add an additional donation? Uh, or, or here is what the average person pays here. Would you like to pay that? This is not free. There's so much in this world that, that it would pass itself off as free and then you find out there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? People say that all the time. And it's true. Except when you come to the grace of God. Guys, the grace of God does not even have a suggested donation there to make you feel bad about it. The grace of God is not something that God gives to the deserving. It's not a grace of God to those who were on this particular level of merit to deserve it. It's undeserved. It's as a gift. It's freely. It's not the grace of God to be received and then paid back through a life of, uh, <laughs> of self-punishment at the very idea that, that God would have given you this. No, this is a free grace of God. It's a free gift. When it says, as a gift, that's in the ESV here, or freely as it says in some other translations, when it says, as a gift, it's the same word that's used for example, in places where Paul says that he's not going to charge people for preaching the gospel, that he's going to preach freely, it's freely given. Or it's another, it's the same word is used in another place to describe um, Jesus being accused without reason. That without reason is the same word. This idea that when, when they came up against Jesus to, to accuse him, to crucify him, that there was absolutely no basis to do that. And what this says is that when God comes to give us grace, there is absolutely no basis in us to do that. Sometimes you, you'll hear people say, well, I, I love the grace of God because I just don't understand what it was that God saw in me. Well, in a way, that's a good thought because you don't understand, but the, here's the reality. There was nothing. If there was something that God saw in you to be deserving of his grace, it would no longer be grace. Grace would no longer be grace. This is not the kind of thing where God looked down the tunnel of time to see who would be the kind of person who fill in the blank, who would have faith, who, who anything else or else it would not be grace. It would be on the basis of a merit, on the basis of these are the kind of people that I will give this to. God actually said very clearly here in Romans 3 already that there is none who seeks God, so that's a kind of an unbiblical concept to start with. I won't go down that rabbit trail right now, though. We'll go down it later, but not right now. This grace of God is free. It is unmerited. So how does God decide who to give it to? Well, you know what he says? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's not up for us to question that. 
It's not up for us to say, well, oh, I can see why God did that. I can see why God gave grace to this person and not this person. That's not up to us. Our, our proper response is to get on our knees and to glorify and to give thanks to God as the one who gives grace as a gift. What is grace? Well, I, I, I love this definition. It's, it's, it's oversimplified, but I still love it. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. It is God giving his undeserved, unmerited favor. It is God not receiving us on the basis of works or the covenant of works that Adam and Eve were born under, where you obey perfectly and you will receive eternal life, which they certainly messed up and so have we all have sinned. It's not on the basis of that. It is on the basis of God's, what we call the covenant of grace, where he freely gives. It is undeserved it is God's riches. It's not even just this idea where you would go from being really guilty to just not guilty. You know, if somebody comes out of a courtroom and they've been declared not guilty, well, it's not like they have a palace given to them, like, congratulations, you are now king. When we come before God and receive grace, we're not just declared not guilty. He says, you have now been received into his royal family, adopted in as his children. You have been granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have been saved by the Father who chose you before the foundation of the world and by the Son who came and redeemed you by his blood and by the Holy Spirit who put his seal upon you by the full God and you have been brought in. You who were not a people are now the people of God declared to be a kingdom of priests forever and they shall reign on the earth. God gives beyond what we can possibly imagine and he gives it freely. That's grace. It's grace. And you say, well, wh wh where does faith come into this? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. And just as we talked about it last time, we're going to talk about it again. But it's, it is the instrument by which we receive salvation. It's by faith. And I have to say here, our faith is not the cause of our salvation. God's grace is the cause of our salvation. The fact that we have faith is a result of the fact that God gives us grace. Our faith is a gracious gift from God through which he saves us. I know this because the Bible says so. It says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. I know this because Philippians 1, 29 says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ that you should believe in him. It is by God's grace that he gives even the gift of faith in Jesus. One thing you can do if you don't have faith in Jesus, pray that God will give you that gift. I think he would enjoy that prayer. And believe. And when you believe, thank God. This is part of why whenever we come to, to passages in the New Testament where Paul thanks God for believers, he thanks God for their faith because God has given it by his grace. What about repentance? Some would hear what I've said so far, and they would say, well, he's, he's preaching grace too freely. He's saying that people have a license to sin. Well, may it never be. May it never be. But here's the fact again. You don't repent in order to receive God's grace. God gives his grace, and out of that grace flows your repentance. Now, you say, well, is that on a timeline? Like, do I get God's grace on Monday and then I repent on Thursday? No, it's instantaneous, but you need to know the causes here. You don't make God give you grace. God gives you grace and transforms your heart. He, he says you must be born again. He takes away your heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh. He justifies us by his grace as a gift. This grace is saving grace. This grace is transforming grace. It is by grace that you have begun. It is by the Spirit that you've begun, and you're not going to be perfected by the flesh, it says in Galatians. It's going to be by grace that you grow. 
Even as we do things in this life, even as you come to church and study your Bible and pray, we call those means of grace, not earning something from God. Grace continues in your life, and grace is not given to everyone. God is not required to give it to everyone. If God owed anybody grace, it wouldn't be grace. But this grace, when we receive it in Christ, it is always enough for us. And even that statement is too small because it's not just enough for us. God's grace abounds for us. In Jesus, as we're going to see next week, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, because he died on the cross in our place for our sins and rose from the dead, he can give this grace in full to all who believe, and that grace is always greater than our sin. I want to encourage you, unbeliever, if you think that you can't receive the grace of God because of your sin, your sin is exactly the reason why God gives grace. And God is glorified in that, to justify you, sinner, by his grace. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus and you are weighed down by your sins today, I want to read you Romans 5.20. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace will abound for you more and more grace upon grace. Come to Jesus and receive and embrace and live in that free gift of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that came in Christ. I thank you that Jesus has come into the world. I thank you that Jesus has lived perfectly in our place so that his righteousness could be counted as ours. I thank you that he has died perfectly on the cross to redeem us, died for our sins in our place. I thank you that he is risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, still functioning today as our prophet and our priest and our king and giving grace upon grace. God, I pray that that those who are outside of your grace right now, I pray that you would give them the grace to recognize that they don't deserve your grace. But I pray also that you give them the grace of salvation, justification through faith in Jesus. God, I pray for us who are believers. I pray that you would uphold us by your grace. Where we feel our sin increasing, I pray that your grace would abound all the more, that you'd grant us to draw near to you that you draw near to us. God, where we have problems that are massive, I pray that you would show us the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord and the grace that you give to walk through those things. God, we've begun by grace. Help us to finish by grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.